0: So, For the past month and a half-ish, we've been traveling through uh, the book of First Samuel in, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures and the Bible. Um, and it's set in the region of Palestine around 1020 BC. Um, and First Samuel acts as, as kind of a hinge text between the Book of Judges of Israel uh, to the rise of the kingdom of Israel and the monarchy. The book of Judges, if you've read that in the immersed series that we've been uh, reading through, or just if you've ever read it in your life, it only takes once really, uh, it describes this horrible, horrible toilet bowl of a downward spiral of what happens when the people of God abandon obedience to God. Israel had made a covenant, a holy commitment to God when he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They were to obey the laws of God, and in turn, God would bring them into a promised land where they would have shalom, or this all-encompassing peace of God. God promised that he would be with them and that he would continue to deliver them. Now, as the story develops, Israel repeatedly defaults on their half of the covenant. They are unfaithful to God, and this plays out in their horrifying, horrifying unfaithfulness to each other and to the other nations around them. Legally, ethically, and morally, God had every right to allow Israel to just eat the rotten fruit of their unfaithfulness. Legally, ethically, and morally, God could have, some have even argued God should have, called the covenant with Israel null and void. Call it a breach of contract, a divorce, irreconcilable differences, justice, judgment, call it any of those things, but God, frankly, would not be at fault for walking away from that covenant. Israel had broken it so many times. But contained in 1 Samuel, we have quite a different sort of story. Instead of abandoning his people, God shows the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed can be translated as love, kindness, loyalty, faithfulness, or mercy, among other things. But when used of God's hesed toward people, we might say that it is is his covenant-keeping love. God shows Hesed his holy commitment to an unholy Israel, and he does this by first sending them the prophet Samuel, who is going to reveal the will of the Lord to the people, and then he raises up this king, David, who will deliver the people from their oppressors, and he's also a type of deliverer pointing to a future deliverer or king, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Now, if you're just joining us on this journey, let me just tell you, for the past few weeks, we've been following this man Saul, who was the king of Israel, and we've been looking at his slow and steady decline, while we've also been noticing the ascension or the rise of this young man David, who would one day be king, In chapters 17, 18, and 19 of 1 Samuel, we see God's initiative all over the place. He's at work in all these crazy ways. He's speaking through prophets. He's delivering David and Israel from giant dudes named Goliath. God is protecting David from Saul's repeated attempts to murder him. We've seen God both speak through the Samuel prophet, and we have seen God intervene, intervene through these spiritual powers and weird spirits and all kinds of stuff like that. What a wild saga, right? Of giant slaying and family soap opera and intrigue and attempted murder and gritty war scenes and deep friendship and drama in the royal family. It's also fantastical. And yet most of life isn't very fantastic. Not that it's bad. It's just kind of ordinary. It's most of our life is routine of sleeping and eating and working and maintaining stuff and relating and breathing, right? It's just, like, that's most of our life. And if you consider the church calendar and its secular rhythms, like, yeah, there's special times like Advent and Christmastide and Lent and Easter, but most of the calendar is green. We have the green on the tablecloth here. Why is that? Because that is the color of ordinary time. And that is most of the Christian calendar, is ordinary time. Most of life, and therefore most of our lives with God, is happening in ordinary time. Now this evening, we're gonna be working through 1 Samuel chapter 20, and compared to the stories that have come before it, chapter 20 has no prophets, no giants, no wars. God doesn't even speak directly in chapter 20. It's a chapter of ordinary time. It's a chapter where people choose how they are going to live and to relate to one another based on what God has done in them and to them and through them in the previous stories and what he's promising to do in the future. It's a chapter really about holy commitment. And in many ways, it's the kind of chapter that you and I can most relate to. So let me just set the scene in case you forgot what happened last week. Saul, the current king, has proven himself to be unfit to be God's representative king of Israel. So God has taken his favor away from Saul, and he's placed it on this young man named David instead. And instead of Saul just accepting his fate, he becomes insanely jealous of David, and he tries to kill him on multiple occasions. Now Saul has several children, but two in particular come into play. His daughter, Michal, is actually married to David, which, as you can imagine, is a complicated relationship when her daddy is trying to kill her husband, right? That's, that's crazy. Um, then he has this son, Jonathan, and Jonathan is, on the one hand, the heir to Saul's throne, like he's next in line for the throne. He's also David's bestie, like his best friend in the world, and that is also very complicated. Jonathan has seen that God is with David, not with his dad, and he's stuck in the middle, and he's got to decide, how can I still honor my father while being obedient to God and his chosen one, David? Most recently, Saul has tried to kill David in the hometown of Samuel the prophet, a place called Nayath ramah God intervenes and causes Saul to be incapacitated, like it literally says he lays naked and he's on the ground for a day. And what that does is provides David a day to get away from Saul, to make some headway. And that's exactly where we pick up the story right now. If you'd like to follow along, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And I'm going to just read the first nine verses and we'll we'll get started on this. When David fled from Niath at Ramah, and he went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? Never, Jonathan replied, you're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as, you, and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because the annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says to you, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure he's determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? Lord, as we enter this story that is devoid of your direct speech, that doesn't have prophet speaking, or miracles, or giants. The story of seeming ordinariness. Won't you speak to us who live most often in the ordinary time? Won't you show us what it is to be faithful? And would you help us, Lord, to believe and to trust that you are faithful? Amen. Saul conceivably out of the picture for a short while as he's writhing naked at Neath-Ramah, gives David time to go see his best friend. David is ripped up on the inside because surely he thinks Jonathan, Saul's son, would know that Papa's out to kill him, and Jonathan, for some reason, hasn't warned David. As it turns out, Jonathan has been deceived. David deduces that Saul must have kept his plan of murder a secret from his son, Jonathan, because Saul knew that Jonathan loved David, that they were best friends. Jonathan is still unwilling to fully believe that his father could have it out for David without him possibly knowing about it. And so David devises this plan. At the New Moon Festival, when everyone will come to the king's house, the the court of the king would come there, uh, it would be expected that David would be at the table. Why? Because he's his son-in-law, and he's the commander of um, much of Saul's standing army. The plan is this. David skips the festivities, and Jonathan's supposed to look out on whether or not Saul is super upset, and therefore mad, he misses the opportunity to kill him, Or, if he doesn't care, which would probably mean David would be safe. Now, besides these plans in the first nine verses, the most important part of the passage is in verse 8. David asks Jonathan, in most of your translation it will say, to show him kindness. In Hebrew it is to show him hesed. There's that word again, hesed. Jonathan asks David, or David asks Jonathan to show him hesed. In other words, he asked Jonathan to be faithful to him, to show him holy commitment. Verse 10, David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out to the field. And so they went out into the field together. And then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord God of Israel that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness, again, hesed in Hebrew, I'm going to say it again. Show me unfailing hesed, like the Lord's hesed, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your hesed from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies into account, And Jonathan and David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. In the first section, David asks Jonathan to show him Hesed to be his friend and be wholly committed to him. In this section, Jonathan affirms that commitment to David, and he even goes so far as to call on the Lord to bless David in the same way that he blessed Saul, meaning to take the anointing from Saul and to put it on his friend David. And this means that Jonathan is not only pledging his allegiance to David, he's also pledging his allegiance to David as Israel's future king. Jonathan then asks for a commitment for hesed from David. In verse 14, he says, show me unfailing hesed as the Lord's hesed as long as I live so that I may not be killed. In other words, if I may paraphrase, brother David, I see that the Lord is with you and has anointed you to be king. And I will lay down my earthly right as heir to the throne to follow the kingdom of God and you as the anointed king of that kingdom. Jonathan knows that the way of the world is this. When a new king is crowned, that king often kills every rival to the throne. So if David, conceivably in this worldview, would have taken the throne, he would have been considered wise in the ancient Near East to kill all of Saul's children and grandchildren, especially the males, so that there is no one who could legally take his throne back. You see how that works? It's brutal and gross, and that's the way it was. And what Jonathan is saying is, make a covenant with me that you won't treat me like that when you make it to the throne, because I'm going to support you and not my dad. I'm making a covenant with you. I'm going to show you Hesed. Would you show me Hesed? holy commitment? But that's not all. In verse 15, Jonathan once again requests David to show hesed, but this time it's not for him personally, but for his children as well. So David and Jonathan make a covenant together, a binding oath of loyalty, a holy commitment. Now, in the next few verses, 18 through 23, all of this uh, pageantry goes on. They make this plan. Jonathan explains his plan to David, right? And he says, oh, "No, I'll have David hide out in this field. After the festival of the new moon is over, Jonathan will have news of his dad. He's either going to be He's either going to come with news that Saul is not going to kill David, or you better run, right? And so the plan is this. I'm going to shoot arrows. I'm going to take my bow and arrow. I'm going to pretend to be doing target practice. No one will suspect anything, but just in case my dad attaches spies to me, thinks Jonathan, you know, David will be hidden, and I'll just, I'm just doing target practice, and he shoots the arrows, right? And he's going to bring a servant boy. Now, the thing is this. If if Saul is for David, then he's just going to say, hey, servant boy, a little to the left or a little to the right, pick up the arrows over there, and David will know that that's his cue to come out because everything's cool. But if Jonathan says to the servant boy, keep going, go further, the arrows are further away, then that is David's cue to run, that he's not safe in the kingdom. So David hides out in the field. And the first day of the new moon festival begins. This festival, by the way, is mentioned in several places in the scriptures. Numbers 10.10, if you're curious, you can look it up. The feast celebrates the new moon of the month, but it's also set aside as a holy day to the Lord, where meals were shared and where sacrifices were made. And since it was a holy day and you've got the sacrificial element, you were supposed to be ceremonially clean, there were lots of things that could make a person unclean in the, in the ancient world, both in Israel and in other ancient Near Eastern cultures. Serious defilement could come from touching a dead body or from having a skin disease. We probably know about those things from Bible passages. But most often people were unclean because of touching things like reproductive bodily fluids or blood or touching any object that itself had touched something that makes a person unclean. So it was really easy to get unclean. And when Saul sees that David isn't at the dinner table on the first day, he thinks to himself, eh, David's probably just unclean today, so he's not there at the first day. So the whole thing only works if David's gone two days in a row, and here's why. First of all, isn't it just weird that Saul thinks, David's not at dinner. It must be because he's ceremonially unclean. Certainly it wasn't the fact that I've tried to kill him four times now. That's how deranged Saul is at this point in the story. Regardless, it doesn't seem to be an issue. That is, until the second day. Now, most things that made a person ceremonially unclean could also be undone with like a day's removal from the community and special ceremonial washing. So Saul fully expected David to be at the dinner table the second night for the festival of the new moon. After all, when an ancient king calls you to the table, any rejection of that offer, at best, is seen as an insult, and at worst, might be taken as treason. We already know that Saul's a little bit paranoid, right? That's an understatement. All right, now let's pick up the story in verse 27 and see what happens when David skips out on dinner the second day. The next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That, this is, what, that is why he's not at the king's table tonight. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. That's a euphemism for worse stuff. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should you put him to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled a spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger on that second day of the feast, and he didn't eat at all because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Jonathan and David have made this covenant together they see that God is up to something so much bigger than themselves and their own destinies, and they have become more than friends. They have become spiritual friends. They're loyal to each other because in so doing, they're being loyal to God. Now Saul, for what it's worth, is also fiercely committed to things, as we see in this text. He's committed to something of his own making. Saul is committed to his family at all costs, which if we're not, you know, that's kind of an American ideal. Saul is committed to his family at all costs. He's committed to his son becoming king after him. And you see this in the way that he questions Jonathan. Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to dinner tonight? By not using David's name and calling him the son of Jesse, who, by the way, is just a nobody shepherd from Bethlehem. Saul is reinforcing the reality that David is way socially inferior to his son, Jonathan, a purebred prince. When Jonathan explains that he gave David permission to celebrate the feast with his family, Saul becomes enraged and he betrays his true loyalties. First, Saul insults insults both Jonathan. who is the apple of his eye, and he insults Jonathan's mother, his very own wife. As a husband and as a father, Saul had covenants to honor and protect his wife and son. But what we see here in the text is that Saul had a deeper covenant commitment. His true commitment was to his own ideas about what his family should act like and what his family should look like, and what his family should be like. Those are Saul's true commitments, I believe. Saul sees that Jonathan is loyal to David, and that means that he's not going to live up to daddy's dream for him, that Jonathan is not indeed going to be the heir of the throne. He's not going to take over the family business, so to speak. When Jonathan doesn't live up to these expectations, he is willing not only to insult him, but to show him violence. Now he's not just throwing spears at David, but his own son, Jonathan. By, by the way, like, the mighty warrior Saul, <laughs> he's not very good with a spear. Like, bro, stick to the sword. You're much, like, he's missed three, three times <laughs> at, like, point-blank range. He's just not very good with the spear. Um, okay, a little aside to do. Saul is a warning to us, I think, about our commitments, even commitments that might seem culturally acceptable on the outside, like like family or career or aspirations or political affiliations. Being committed to someone or something in itself isn't necessarily holy and isn't necessarily good. In 1986, the world's worst nuclear disaster took place, in Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine. This past year, there's a five-part miniseries uh, called Chernobyl, creatively, right? Anybody seen that? looks it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic, and it dramatically retells the events of this tragic and quite preventable nuclear meltdown. As the story unfolds, there's several subplots going on. Of course, the main story is how on earth did this happen? But one of the implicit reasons for the disaster one of the things that they're trying to critique I think in the in the uh, dramatic documentary is this almost blind allegiance or commitment to the Soviet Union the unholy commitment to the state influenced everyone involved from the power plant the the nuclear power plant manager to the regional representatives and everyone in between Even though the levels of radioactivity were literally pegging the meters off the chart, people were paralyzed with fear to say anything because they were afraid of tarnishing A, the name of the state. They were super afraid that the West would find out that the mighty Soviet Union had made a mistake, so they didn't ask anyone for help. And they were afraid as individuals, the power plant manager and other workers at the plant, they were terrified that they would be blamed for making a mistake and lose their job and lose their place in the state, go to prison. And the haunting through line of the whole mini-series is the question, what is the cost of lies? What is the cost of lies? In the end, the cost of those lies was a horrible death for thousands radiation sickness and birth defects for tens of thousands, and the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people, and to this day, hundreds and hundreds of acres of land are uninhabitable for human beings. Loyalty to unholy commitments is not held up as praiseworthy in this text. But let's finish the chapter and find out what holy commitment can look like. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow behind him, and when the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his, weapons and, uh, gave his weapons and the arrows to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, Jonathan got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before, uh, D- David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they embraced and kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. This whole arrow thing is designed to keep David's position, his location, secret, And it's also designed to protect Jonathan. So they have no association. Jonathan could have been seen as a a treasonous son. Uh, David would have been killed if he was caught on sight. But knowing that their commitment to each other would lead to their final separation, they throw caution to the wind and they live into the gravity of the moment. It's truly a touching scene if you mull over it and read it over and over again. Look at the stakes of the game. Look at them knowing that this is probably the final time they'll be able to see each other. Uh, These brothers, these ones who have sworn their commitment to themselves and their families. And it's more than sentimentality. What makes the commitment between Jonathan and David a holy commitment is that it's rooted in their hesed or their loyalty to God. It's one thing to be loyal to God in theory. We sing about it and we recite psalms that, Lord, I, you know, you're my everything, and we, we sing these little choruses. But I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but it sure is easy to say. But consider this, from our perspective as people who know that David will one day become king, and that Jesus would one day be born out of David's line, it is easy to know that Jonathan is making the clearly right decision here. Walter Brueggemann has a great quote. Considering the fact that Jonathan doesn't know the future, David doesn't know for sure that Jonathan won't betray him. This is what Brueggemann says. From our vantage point, with this literature biased toward David, it's easy to choose David over Saul. Jonathan, however, had to choose much earlier, still in the midst of much ambiguity, The text invites us to reflect on the cost of loyalty and the terrible ambiguities within which loyalty must be practiced. Jonathan is having to act in this moment in faith that the kingdom of God is coming through David and that that is a real thing even though he can't see it yet. He has no idea if David will actually make it. Jonathan acts in faith that choosing to trust in God by being loyal to David is a better choice than banking on his father's kingdom and his own right to the throne. Like, Jonathan is a prince. He eats whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He's got access to money. He's got access to lots of suitable uh, wives. Um, he he, he's got it made. He can see those things. He can touch those things. Those are real for him. This whole thing about David being king and God's plan with David and the kingdom of God, that's all, that's all faith. That would be so hard to walk away from the one for the sake of the other. What an example of holy commitment, of hesed, of friendship. And this relationship between these two men is not founded on their good character or the goodness of the one or the other. It's rooted in faith in God and and, and a hessed commitment to God's person and to God's ways and to God's kingdom. And the story really points us forward to the good news of God's hessed commitment to you and me and to all creation. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, goes the famous line from Paul in the book of Romans while we were breaking our covenant commitment with God to worship him with integrity and to steward creation well and to treat each other with dignity while we were breaking all of those commitments to God he put on flesh and dwelt among us and came to rescue us and he came not just to free us from like the moral consequences of our unfaithfulness but also to bring the promise of resurrection and new creation, the promise of a life where we'll have hearts and minds that will allow us to be wholly faithful to him like we want to be in our deepest core. Amen? That is such good news that it is not just about fire insurance, that it is about a wholeness of life. Jesus is God's holy commitment to us in the flesh, and he calls us to practice holy commitment to one another. Corey read from John 15 earlier in this service, and in that text, Jesus said, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lays one's life down for one's friends. Love one another. Like Jonathan, we are asked to live by faith in a kingdom that we cannot yet see. It's not here in fullness yet. And on the one hand, what we have is tangible like we, we have what the world is feeding us all the time. You should be about your own happiness. I should be about my own agenda, my own bank account, my own family, my own happy echo chamber of people who think just like me and look a little bit like me and have the same values as me and I'm safe and happy there and that's what I should be building my life upon. In truth, none of those things can save me and they can't save you. We would be wise to invest in Jesus and his way. And the best way to practice that, to live out our loyalty to Jesus, is to be wholly committed to others who are also striving to be faithful to Jesus. And the most obvious application this bounces out of this chapter 20 is to invest in spiritual friendships, similar to the one that David and Jonathan enjoyed. Like, do you have friends in your life that encourage you and challenge you to follow the Jesus way? Do you have someone that you can be there for in their time of need? Is there someone that you know has your back and has a Jesus perspective when they have your back? In our culture, we have so overemphasize the romantic side of relationships, that the implicit message is that you can't possibly be happy or complete unless you have a sexual partner. And often the byproduct of this thinking is a neglect of rich, deep friendships, as if those things were somehow secondary or less necessary than getting your sexual needs met. But for most of modern, or most of human history, and in many cultures still today, friendships form a significant piece of the foundation of human flourishing. So do you have a spiritual friend or two? If not, how might you invest yourself in someone so that you aren't walking alone and are making sure that others aren't walking alone? If you're married, take a self-assessment. Are you more concerned uh, about what you receive out of your marriage? Are you more bothered by what you aren't receiving than you are about your spouse thriving in his or her relationship with Jesus? A lot of times we get hung up on what our marriage isn't doing for us, what our spouse isn't doing for us, rather than how we can help them thrive. For those who have children or parents, beware of Saul, who was so invested in his own ideal of what his family and children should be like that he neglected completely to accept them for who they are. Who is more interested in his own happiness than helping them follow the will of God? And you can see how this holy commitment can be practiced and exercised In personal relationships, but it also extends to the greater social world. It is sad to me how many Christians claim such an absolute allegiance to a particular political leader or party or ideology, when in fact, if you follow Jesus, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. No other kingdom is is primary to that. What might it cost us to refuse the worldly offerings of power and influence and the safety of being set in our ways in order that we can follow the much more nuanced and messy and demanding way of Jesus? Well, this all sounds so hard. (laughs) So, let me end with this. Thanks be to God that he has and continues to show Hesed toward us. His covenant-keeping love toward you and I. He has called us into relationship with him. He has promised us a place in his kingdom through faith in Jesus, and that makes the call to form holy commitments, not a burden, but a very good news opportunity. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us, for your Hesed relationship to us for being faithful for being a god who rescues time and time again even in our failings and especially in our failings lord i pray for a fresh sense of how wonderful your grace and mercy is how how desperately each one of us is dependent on you and your grace and mercy And I pray that that would spur us on, Lord, to be so generous with others. To will the people in our lives to know your grace and mercy. To encourage the people in our lives to grow with you and to know you more deeply. And to have the courage to rely on other people when we desperately need help in tangible, tangible ways. Bless you, Lord. Amen.